So we'll open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we will look at verse 10 through 12. We'll finish this great introduction that Peter has given us, uh, really all about salvation. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. In football terms, an audible is when the quarterback changes the offense's play at the line of scrimmage, probably because of the way the defense has set up. Maybe in the huddle, they called a run play, but when he comes to the line of scrimmage, the quarterback sees this is not going to work, and so maybe he changes to a pass play, and so he quickly changes plans. Brother Richard and I uh, jokingly use that term when we need to adjust things about our worship service, maybe the order of something, maybe uh, there's a special, maybe whatever it may be. And that happened yesterday as we were sort of finalizing things for the service, songs, musicians, and you notice this morning that Brother Richard actually played the piano and Brother Connor led our, our singing, and so we had to call an audible. And yesterday, Brother Jordan sent a text and he said, hey, audibles are our specialty. And I replied, Jordan, have you seen my sermon introduction? He had no clue, but he knew what we were having to do because people being out of town and just different things like that. So we, we called an audible. Sometimes our plans change quickly. As finite creatures, we're really not that powerful. We are not that much in control. And so sometimes we are forced to react to things, to adapt to things, to change our plans, sometimes even on the fly. But God is different. I don't mean that God never responds to anything, but He doesn't adapt. He does not change. He is in total control of everything always. And when it comes to salvation, His plans have never changed. For the past few weeks, We've seen Peter give this wonderful description of our salvation in Christ. And he spoke about the future of it. Our inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof. God is guarding it in heaven for us. And so our hope for the future is guaranteed. But it's not only future. Our salvation also produces unspeakable joy in the present. Last week we learned that even though we don't physically see Jesus, we love Him, we trust Him, and in Him there is indescribable joy right now, even though we may face trials here on this earth. This morning as we finish this introductory section about salvation, Peter teaches us that this great salvation in Christ, which is guaranteed in the future and enjoyed in the present, was something God had planned in the past. Salvation in Christ was not a random strategy from God. It was not God's plan B. He didn't call an audible at the line of scrimmage when Adam sinned. He didn't change things when the Jews rejected Jesus. It was always God's plan for Christ to suffer and then be glorified. It's a, it's a plan so ancient that we'll see this morning, even the Old Testament prophets not only spoke about it, but were interested in it, and even angels themselves are fascinated by this plan of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read verse 10 through 12. Peter says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, 
searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. In verse 10, Peter brings up the past by mentioning the Old Testament men of God who prophesied about salvation. And he specifically says they prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. These prophets that Peter is mentioning are these Old Testament prophets who wrote much of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like a soaked sponge, except it's not filled up with water, but it is saturated with prophecies about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When you squeeze the Old Testament, God's grace in His Son come out. The Old Testament just abounds with references, prophecies, teachings about salvation by grace through the work of Christ. All throughout the Old Testament. Whether you're uh, looking at the sacrifices and the feasts and the law of Moses, or if you're reading the Psalms or studying what we call the actual prophets themselves, or even reading narratives like the story of David and Mephibosheth, or the story of Jonah... God's grace through Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus himself told two disciples who were struggling after his death and they didn't know he had yet resurrected. He told them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke writes this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you study the Old Testament and you miss God's grace through Christ, you're studying it wrong. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ is not a New Testament invention. It was God's plan all along. The prophets spoke of this grace that would come and it was something that fascinated them and deeply interested them. Notice that Peter says in verse 10, they, they inquired and searched diligently about it. Both of these actions speak to some very intensive search. The search of the prophets into this grace through Christ was a thorough, diligent careful, extensive study. One author says it like this, that it indicates an intensive search or investigation, one that considers the matter from every point of view. Now, when we're thinking about their search, don't misunderstand it and assume that it means that they question the truth of their message or that they question the accuracy of what God was telling them. What Peter means is that they searched and desired to understand it more fully. They wanted to have a better comprehension of it, a better grasp of it. And I think just think about it from your perspective. We know the Bible's true. We know we can trust it. We know it's inspired by God. But do we have perfect understanding of everything in it? 
No. But hopefully we search it out. We diligently study it and we, we pray and we talk with one another and we study together and we do things that, that we know God can use as well to help us understand it more. It's not that we question whether or not it's truth, but we want to know it more. And the prophets did the same thing long ago. Surely they prayed for God to help their understanding. They probably spoke with other wise people, other spiritual people about it. They consulted other texts. We know that Daniel did that. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel knew that the Babylonian captivity was coming to an end because he was studying the prophecies of Jeremiah. The Bible is its own best commentary. So the prophets searched into this salvation that would come through Christ to try and understand it more fully. But there are a couple of benefits or advantages that we have over them to help us do that. First, we have the benefit of time. It is a blessing to be able to look back and see how God's plan has unfolded. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the empty tomb. And so that helps us understand so much more about redemptive history because we've witnessed more of it. More of it has already unfolded. And secondly, along with that, we have the completed Word of God now. Just think for a minute how much we wouldn't know or wouldn't know as much about if we didn't have the Gospels. Or if we didn't have Paul's letters or all the other New Testament writings. It's such a blessing to have the completed Bible today. But we still search it. We still diligently try to inquire of it to understand things in a fuller way. But the prophets lacked those things. They lacked time. They lacked the completed Word of God. And so they searched what they had. They wondered about specifics. In verse 11, Peter mentioned they, they, they searched and wondered, you know, maybe what we would call the nuts and bolts of things, the who's, the when's, the how's of how this would happen. And they tried to reconcile Christ's sufferings and, and His glory. And we'll talk about that. But you see in verse 11 this word for searching. It's, it's the same word for search diligently in verse 10, but it's a little bit less intense version of it. And it doesn't mean that this wasn't a careful search, but Peter's just simply restating that the prophets desired to know more about this. They searched into this, uh, and they did what they could to learn more about it. And he specifically says they, they searched what or what manner of time. Some of you may have a translation that says the time and the circumstances. Some may say what person or time. They had these prophecies that God gave them. They knew were true, but they, they wanted a deeper or more full, a fuller understanding of what we might call specifics. Who might this Messiah be? When would these prophecies take place? How would they happen? And again, let's put ourselves not in their shoes, but let's sort of think about it from our perspective. Do we do the same thing with Christ's second coming? I think we do, with the obvious exception that we know Jesus is the Christ. 
But God has revealed much of His plan to us. We know Christ will return one day. We know that He will crush the Antichrist kingdom. We know that He will reign for a thousand years on this earth. But sometimes we still wonder about the specifics. We still maybe wonder about the timing of it all, right? And the prophets did that. One commentator, he sums it up like this. He says, The prophets were aware that they were speaking of a Messiah. But who the man should be who would hold that office or at what period of their history he would arise was what they longed to know. They foresaw a Christ, but they could not foresee Jesus. And that wasn't their fault. This was a disadvantage of time, a disadvantage of, of living before Jesus and of not having the completed Bible yet. Without those two things that we have, it would be tougher to fully understand the specifics and the prophecies of Christ, especially when you think of this idea at the end of verse 11 of sufferings and glory. Peter brought that up. Sufferings and glory seem to be polar opposites. They're contrary to one another. Suffering and glory in our world, in our minds, they don't go together. And so the ancient Jews struggled to reconcile the idea of a suffering Messiah with the idea of a glorified Messiah. It was difficult for them to resolve these prophecies that seemed to contradict one another. And I emphasize the word seemed. Often in the Old Testament, the Messiah is depicted as this commanding conquering, dominant, glorious figure. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah writes, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. That sounds pretty glorious, doesn't it? That's a dominant, conquering, awesome Messiah. But still there are other passages that describe a Messiah with far less power and glory. They detail a man of sorrow, a man of shame, a man of suffering and perceived weakness. Staying in Isaiah. In the very famous chapter of Isaiah 53, he wrote, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. Well, that sounds a lot like suffering and shame and sorrow. And both of these passages, the glorious one and the suffering one, are from the same prophet. 
And so the Jews struggled to understand and harmonize these seemingly contradictory passages. Sufferings and glory don't seem to mix. And so the prophets wanted to understand more. They searched into this. And one Jewish Christian, he described how most of the ancient Jews handled this seeming contradiction. And he, he writes this, The most common way that they resolved the conflict was to believe that there would be either a suffering Messiah or a conquering Messiah. Which Messiah would come would depend upon the spiritual state of the Jewish people at that time God sent the Messiah. If the Jews were good, they would get the conqueror. If the Jews were bad, they would get the sufferer. That's how most ancient Jews reconciled this idea. Well, think about then when Jesus came to the earth. What was the spiritual state of the Jews at that time? Well, they were under Roman rule. And at least in their own minds, they thought they were being good Jews. The temple was still here. They were still sacrificing. They were keeping the Sabbath. They were keeping the law of Moses, at least in their minds, right? And with all of that context, what did they expect their Messiah to do? They expected the conquering, glorious Messiah. They, went, they wanted to be delivered from Rome and for their Savior to set up this great, glorious kingdom of His own. And so the idea of suffering had been lost. And today you can research modern-day Judaism and their belief about a Messiah still. The idea of suffering is completely absent from modern-day Judaism. They await the conqueror. The first century Jews, when Jesus was alive on this earth... They were ready for the glory and for the splendor. And it wasn't just the religious leaders who felt this way. Jesus' own disciples were ready for this. Do you remember when Jesus predicted of His suffering and coming death, and Peter, the very author of this letter, rebuked Him for that? So they didn't get it either. They were ready for the glory. And so just one, one more time, let me emphasize how blessed we are to be living now with the ability to look back at the cross and read the entire New Testament. It's clear to us, it should be, how to reconcile the suffering passages with the glorious passages. God was not predicting two different messiahs. And He was not predicting some sort of either-or scenario. But He was predicting two different comings of the same messiah. The messiah's first coming would be filled with suffering. Filled with shame as He went to the cross and took upon Himself your sins and the sins of the whole world. Because before mankind can enjoy the blessing of a death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof inheritance, we need to be forgiven and redeemed. We need to be washed clean. We need our sins taken care of. And the only way that is possible is through the suffering and death of the Son of God. And so, Jesus Christ fulfilled those prophecies of the suffering Messiah with His first coming to this earth. But at His second coming, which is getting closer each day, and we can see so many things in our world setting up for that, right? 
Yet we still may wonder about the specifics. We still may wonder about the actual timing. But at His second coming, He will fulfill the passages about glory and splendor and dominance and majesty as He reigns on King David's throne on this very earth for a thousand years and His kingdom will then usher in eternity. Two vastly different appearances of the same Messiah. Those appearances are at least separated by 2,000 years. But that's how those prophecies are reconciled. Something that the prophets spoke about long before it happened, even though they didn't fully understand it the way we can, they testified about it beforehand, Peter said. And that ought to remind us of the fact that this has been God's plan all along. Suffering and then glory. God didn't turn to plan B when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus and when His Son was hung on a cross. Long before that happened in history, it was in the mind of God and in the mouths of the prophets. It has been God's salvation plan forever. But verse 12 is awesome. Not only was it God's salvation plan from long ago, but it was also God's plan to use these ancient prophecies to help people in the New Testament era understand the truth about His Son and that Jesus is that promised Messiah. Think about it this way. Since these prophecies were indeed laid forth, we can now look back with the aid and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and see if Jesus did fulfill these prophecies and see if the Holy Spirit does convict us and convince us that Jesus of Nazareth is the actual Christ. The prophecies from long ago were for us. That's what Peter says. Notice verse 12 again. He says, "...unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven." Not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister. Now we know the prophet's words were sometimes directly for their time. They often rebuked people for their sin. They encouraged their people to turn back to God and different things like that. But when they predicted the future uh, things of the Messiah, Peter said they were serving us. People who would later hear the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. God knew that we would need prophecies to look back to. And these prophecies would be crucial in identifying the Savior, in identifying the Christ, and giving us assurance that we've definitely believed in the right man. How do I know Jesus is the Christ? Especially if He was suffered so much and was crucified and He died. How do I know that He's the Messiah? Well, what did the Old Testament say about the Christ? Let's look back and see if those prophecies fit the life of Jesus. 
we look back at the Word of God for the assurance that Jesus is the Messiah. I was listening to Brother Connor's Sunday School class this morning, and for those of you who, who joined in, uh, you heard this as well, but he was talking in Matthew and teaching about the, the time when John the Baptist was in prison. And he, it's a very fascinating time because we know John the Baptist's faith and, and everything he knew and believed about Jesus, but there seemed to be this doubt or this confusion in his mind as he's in prison and, and maybe not understanding everything fully. And when Jesus sent an answer to him, what did he tell him? Did he say, stop worrying, I'm the cross for sure, just quit? No, he sent back the Word of God. He sent back prophecies that he had been fulfilling already in his ministry. Tell him the lame walk, the blind see. Tell him those things. The Old Testament gives us assurance that Jesus is the Messiah. And God knew that we would need that. I mentioned earlier uh, when Jesus spoke to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> he called them fools. You're slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Even Jesus said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he just expounded the Old Testament to them. In Acts chapter 3, Peter himself preached to a crowd and he said this, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Appealing back to the Old Testament was how the early church and the, the apostles and missionaries convinced people that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. When the apostle Paul was in Thessalonica, Luke wrote this, And Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So not only do the Old Testament prophecies give us a glimpse into the eternal mind of God and, and they show us that God's plan has never changed. That He has always loved us. That He was always working for our redemption. But they also teach us that Jesus is that redemption. That Jesus is that Christ and why He needed to suffer. The prophecies, by their very nature, looked forward to Jesus. But God also intended for us to use them and look back at them to see how Jesus fulfilled them so that we could be assured of who we're believing in. And when we do that, we see this perfect unity, cohesion in God's perfect plan. And we see that actually in verse 11 and 12 as we see the Holy Spirit mentioned twice. The Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit, it's the same Spirit, it's God's Spirit. So the same Spirit that was in the prophets giving them the message also convicts us and convinces us of the gospel truth. God's Spirit worked with the prophets. He works with us, maybe in different ways, different times obviously. 
But God's plan has always been, and there's this beautiful unity of it. In fact, it's such an astounding, mysterious, fascinating plan that prophets weren't the only ones looking into this. At the very end of verse 12, Peter says, which things the angels desire to look into. The word look into is a really, really neat word. It has the idea of someone stooping over or bending down to get a better look at something. It's a word used several times in the New Testament to describe the morning of the resurrection. And when the disciples reach the tomb, they stoop in, or they bend over to get a better look at that tomb. It really empty. That's the same word that Peter uses here to describe the curiosity of angels when it comes to the salvation of humanity. He looked down. Is God really doing this? I want to understand this a little bit better. Think about that for a minute. Angels who have been in the presence of God, who know the glories of heaven, who have seen God's work, God's miracles, God's power throughout history, stoop down with a great desire to know more about your salvation. That's how awesome your salvation is. Angels are captivated by what God has done for us through Jesus Christ's sufferings and now His glory. So think about this. If the prophets had such a desire to learn more about it, if angels have such a desire to look more into it, then what should we do? What about us who can look back at the cross as well as the entire Bible to understand more of this grace through Christ? Look back at verse 3 and remember how Peter began this whole section about salvation. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise should overflow in our hearts, in our lives, and in our church when we understand God's gloriously saved us and it's a plan that He has always had. He planned your rescue from hell before you were ever born. Look down at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. Verse 18, Peter wrote, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, notice verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was a lamb slain. God knew the plan and prepared the plan before He had even spoken a word of creation. 
For Christ to suffer and die has always been the plan. It's not an audible, not plan B, not an adaptation to the fall. God didn't scratch his head when man bit the fruit. He didn't wonder, what am I going to do now that my, my very own nation rejected my son? This was his plan forever. How much does he love you? The fact that he knew this, planned this, and gave everything to execute this proves his unending and unmatched love for you. It should overwhelm us to consider what he's done for us. To send his only son to fulfill these prophecies about suffering and shame and sorrow, and he did all that for you. And we can look back at those prophecies and be convinced that Jesus is the Christ. God planned it all along, and He planned to reveal it in His Word all along. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I can't encourage you and, and beg you enough to repent of your sins and trust Him. It's something you can't do on your own. Think about this. If you could save yourself, why in the world would God go to all this trouble? Why a plan that involved the suffering and death of His Son if there were any other way for mankind to be redeemed? But God loved you so much He did not spare His Son. He suffered and died for you. But suffering was not the end for Jesus, was it? Nor will it be the end of those who believe in Him. Just as Jesus was gloriously resurrected, so shall we be. When he returns again to fulfill those glory passages, when he returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not believe, when he reigns, we will reign with him, we will worship him forever, and we will enjoy the indescribable eternal inheritance of the fulfillment and completion of our salvation. And if we go through trials in this life, if we suffer some in this life, God is so good, He can use those to refine us and prepare us for glory. It has always been God's plan for suffering and then glory. Jesus suffered, but now He's glorified. And one day the whole world will see it. Would you stand? We've learned in these verses that Peter has taught us our salvation is hope for the future, joy in the present, and it was planned by God in the past. And may we praise Him forever for the grace He's given us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the benefit that we have of the completed scripture. We thank you for the benefit of time that we have to be able to look back and see how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. We thank you for the assurance that you've given us and had planned uh, throughout eternity. And we, we cannot praise you and thank you enough for this plan to save us. Help us to live our lives for you, Lord, since you've given us yours. And we pray that if there's someone who's lost and needs, needs to trust you as Savior, that your spirit would convict and they would trust you before it's too late. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. 